Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of The Book of Constellations. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, their struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of The Stench of Adventure. Strong Branch Productions presents The Stench of Adventure, Episode 1. How small you are. Part absurdist comedy, part sci-fi satire. The Stench of Adventure is the creation of Alex Kingsley. The story revolves around Stella Thomas, who had spent her whole life trying and failing to be a good daughter, friend, and partner. Then one day, none of that matters, because it turns out that her entire world was a simulation. Now Stella is thrust into a cold and uncaring universe, armed only with the memories of a planet Earth that never existed. Just when it seems there is nothing left for her, Stella is whisked away by a fast-talking woman named Baz, who promises her a life of adventure exploring the galaxy. Of course, the adventure is not entirely what Stella expected. The first episode of The Stench of Adventure, How Small You Are, gives us a glimpse of Stella's struggles in her simulated life before the truth is revealed and she loses everything. I spoke to Alex via Zoom. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to make The Stench of Adventure. Sure. So I am a writer, comedian, and game designer. Those are kind of my big three things. So I originally studied to be a playwright. I realized that I like writing scripts, but I also really enjoyed writing prose, writing all sorts of things. So I also do short stories, novels, and also games, tabletop games, then branching out into video games as well and screenplays. I've had a few short stories picked up for publication, which is cool. And and also comedy. I'm also a stand-up comedian. And that's something that has been very nice to get back into since um, live performance has started up again. Oh, right. Yeah. Because of COVID and the restrictions. Yeah, exactly. Sort of- it was, I, I missed it for a long time. It's something that I really, I really love. Have you always leaned toward comedy in your work? Yeah, pretty much always. It's just been something that comes very naturally to me. And when I say that, I don't mean like, oh, I just think that I'm like naturally funny. I think being funny is something that I've worked very hard on and also (laughs) kind of came as a defense mechanism. I think when you're a kid that grew up getting bullied a lot, you just end up learning to make jokes of things. Right. But yeah, ever since I was very, very little... I just loved things that made me laugh, and I wanted to write things that would make other people laugh. Yeah. But you're right. Comedy is hard. Oh, yeah. It's all about perspective and timing and uh, everything like that. So I get that. So tell me in your own words, what is The Stench of Adventure? The Stench of Adventure is the story of Stella Thomas, who recently found out that she is the only sentient human in the universe. The Earth was a simulation created by cruel aliens who just had a bet and her entire life wasn't real and had no meaning. And now she has to figure out how anything in the world, anything in the universe makes sense when nothing that she ever knew matters. In that kind of existential haze, she ends up 
swept up with this intergalactic garbage collection crew on a ship called the Starship Raccoon. And the story follows not only her zany sci-fi adventures with the crew of the Starship Raccoon, but also her kind of introspection and grappling with these sort of nihilistic thoughts of, you know, does anything matter? Why did you want to write this particular story? There's, there's a multi-pronged answer to that. Okay. This story started when I was in a playwriting workshop when I was in college, and we'd all been given different prompts by the professor. And the prompt that I had been given was, write a scene that is both a comedy and a tragedy. And at the time in college, I was in a sketch comedy group called Boy Meets Tractor. It still exists. I was doing a lot of sketch and that was kind of where my mind was. So I wrote a scene that felt very much like a sketch that later became one of the very first scenes, the last scene of the first episode of The Sedge Adventure, where this woman finds out that her life wasn't real. Uh, her friends get killed in front of her and she has to grapple with the fact that she is alone in the universe. I know describing it now, it sounds really sad, well, but I yeah. wrote it basically <laughs> as a sketch. <laughs> like it was, it was this very silly scene that, you know, my class read out loud and my playwriting professor essentially said, this was a comedy, but it didn't actually fulfill the assignment because it wasn't actually tragic. It was just funny. And I think that's because at the time I didn't really know how to do much other than sketch. So I was like, okay, challenge accepted. I'm going to take this scene and I'm going to turn it into something that is both a tragedy and a comedy. And then I didn't for years. <laughs> I just left it. Right. Then COVID happened, the pandemic happened, and I was in this place of existential dread, wondering, does anything mean anything? What does my life mean now that everything has kind of been redefined? That also, everything started during my senior year of college. That was supposed to be this time of like coming into my own life and defining my future. And none of that was happening. And it started to remind me of the scene that I wrote. And I thought, hey, is it now the perfect time to write a comedy about losing meaning hmm. because we we're in this position where so many people were making art and and writing pieces that were so centered around the pandemic i was like well wouldn't some escapisms be nice wouldn't some laughs be nice it feels like our existence has been so dwarfed by this global crisis wouldn't it be so nice if we could look at that and just make peace with it and laugh i have to agree with you that if you were attempting to turn this into a scene that is both a tragedy and a comedy. I think you succeeded. I Thank actually, you. well, I actually got into your show. Um, if I see a show that crosses my path, that sounds kind of interesting. I'll just kind of pop it on and listen. And this was before we'd even talked about you being on the show. And I listened to your first episode and I was basically going into it blind. I really had no sense of what was going to happen. Um, mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, I was really identifying strongly with Stella in the first half of that episode. It's really a very well-written and poignant kind of scene. Stella is this woman who is has crippling anxiety. She's just talking to a store clerk trying to buy notebooks, and she's telling her life story. And it is funny, but it's also very, I don't know, maybe it's me because I have a habit of collecting blank books. Um, but it was a very <laughs> personal kind of thing, right? And then she gets home and she's struggling with anxiety because she keeps forgetting to buy food. And her boyfriend is confronting her on the fact that they're always eating pizza because she can't get her act together. And she feels terrible about it. I was afraid you forgot. 
because we have nothing in the way of dinner. So I was hoping you'd remember to go to the grocery store and get some food. Oh, heck. What? Not food, errands. I didn't do that. Oh, you were supposed to... Yeah, I know. I forgot. I mean, I've been at work all day, so it's not like I could have gone. Yeah, I know. What are we going to eat? Let's just order pizza. We've had pizza for the past three nights. So a fourth won't make a difference? I've forgotten what fresh vegetables taste like, Stella. I still have that box of moon pies and- That's not dinner. I'll remember tomorrow, I promise. You promised that yesterday. I'm trying my best. Could you make your best better, please? (laughs) Whoa. Are you okay? I'm really sorry. I miss vegetables, too. I'm just as tired of having white rice and peanut butter for dinner as you are. I want to remember what broccoli tastes like. Really, I do. Forget the vegetables. Stella, what's going on? We then get a hint that her father has dementia, and she's struggling to work with him on writing a book. And then right in the middle of the episode, you just yank that away. And all of that drama is evaporated. And I have to say, personally, I was a bit flabbergasted. Uh, no, I, I, I had no idea what was coming. It really gave me a kind of, uh, stylistic whiplash there. Was that what you were aiming for? Were you aiming to really pull the rug out from under the listener? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think one of, one of the realizations that I made going from the original scene to what ended up being the first episode was the reason that it was a, a sketch, a comedy, the first scene was, it was only that scene of surprise, it's aliens. There wasn't this buildup where we get to know who Stella is. I certainly like to think that she is relatable. I've had a lot of people tell me, oh my God, I do the same thing with buying notebooks or like, <laughs> oh my God, I do the same thing with forgetting to buy food. And I would totally be lying if I said that Stella wasn't to some degree autobiographical. There are a lot of things that are in there that are like, yeah, this is this is from my own life. Uh, I think it would be very difficult to write an anxiety disorder without having an anxiety disorder. Right. Yeah. So I totally wanted to ground the audience in the world of this character and with the personality of this character and with the stakes in her life before totally revealing that those stakes were not real. Yeah. I mean, and that makes it really hard, I think, for us to know what's happening next. We get to the end of the first episode and Stella is about to begin this new chapter in her life. She's wandering out of the simulation room and the narrator is the one who tells us, well, she's going to go figure out what's going on. But at the same time, I'm kind of wondering, how do you recover from that? How do you recover from watching your boyfriend and your best friend get killed and having every strip of meaning taken from your life? How do you decide then to keep on adventuring? Is that autobiographical too? Yeah, I think it is. I don't think I necessarily thought, oh, this is a moment that is a moment that I have had in my life. Sure. But I think there have definitely been times where I have just wondered like, what am I even doing? What am I even trying to do? Mm-hmm. And, and and everything feels so pointless. And kind of what is a comfort to me in those times is just reminding myself, you know what? It's a big, weird world. It's kind of like the whole, um, not, to, not to get like 
super philosophical. Sure. But the whole Camus thing uh-huh. about Sis- about Sisyphus right. and how he says that we need to imagine Sisyphus as happy. We're all pushing up that boulder up the hill and it's just going to come back down again. And that's just human existence. Like, I don't really think we are that different from Stella because ultimately... Yeah, we're going to keep trying and failing and that's how it goes. But if we can just remember, it's all it's all absurd. It's all absurd. That, that is a comfort to me. I, well, I, I kind of wanted to ask this question. And and for those of you who are, are listening and maybe not familiar with this, Albert Camus wrote a book called The Myth of Sisyphus, where he compares existence to the Greek myth of Sisyphus, who was punished for defying the gods by being forced to roll a boulder up a hill for all eternity. And whenever he would get to the top, it would slip from his hands and roll back down and he'd have to do it again. And Camus was making the argument that this is okay, that this is what life is like, and that that should be enough to satisfy us. The struggle itself is enough. Sorry, you you hit me right in my philosophical home plate. So, oh, good. I'm I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, there there's all there's always a fear that I'm gonna, you know, name, name a philosopher and people are gonna be like, oh, you're so pretentious. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, uh, <laughs> and I'm I'm very glad that was not the reaction. I'll join you in pretension. I think another aspect of it has to do with the relationships that Stella builds. Like ultimately, it's not really about achieving a goal or finding one specific meaning in her life. It's about the relationships that she ends up building with the crew. Now, from a technical perspective, that is simply not in the first episode. And I think it I think it probably would have been jamming too much into one episode to have her introduced to so many people within the first episode. So just from a like logical perspective, we actually released the first three episodes on the same day. Oh, right. So that people would not just be like, oh, that was a weird start of a show. Where is it going to go from there? And then just and then just stop listening. Do you consider Stench of Adventure to be an absurdist work? It's funny. I never actually thought about it. But yeah, I guess I do. There's clearly some influence of satire. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I get a big Douglas Adams vibe, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right. You know, you've got a narrator uh, who's very much like the book. I really enjoy the narrator's lines and the delivery, too. Stella looked around to find herself no longer in the apartment she shared with Dan, which was very confusing as she didn't remember leaving. It appeared that the walls had simply melted away and that Dan, Mel, and Stella now stood in a huge metal box. In your fucking face, Stu! What? I totally called it! What is happening? Fine, you run. Stella's utter confusion turned to abject horror when she saw the sources of the two new voices. If asked later about the experience, she might have described them as gelatinous pools of green sludge with all their organs floating around their viscous bodies like toy boats in a child's bathtub. What are those things? Where are we? Time to shut it down. Yeah, shut it down. Where did you take us? What is happening? Ah, nowhere. We didn't take you anywhere. You've always been here. What? It does remind me a lot of Douglas Adams there. Oh, thank you. And Douglas Adams, he's, he's sort of making fun of the fact that we humans think we're so great, but in the grand scheme of things, we're actually very small and insignificant. So I get this vibe of satire, and I get this vibe of the absurdity of life. And so that's why I was asking about whether you were approaching this from an absurdist perspective. Is there a, a central kind of message you're trying to convey through satire here or through the absurdity? 
always have the philosophy when I start a piece of writing that I don't necessarily want to approach it with the message in mind because whenever I do that, whenever I'm like, okay, I'm starting with something very theoretical and I'm going to put a story to it. Mm -hmm. I always find that it ends up not really feeling that genuine and I end up very frustrated with it. So I try to start instead with the seed of the story and then see kind of what comes out of that. So originally, no. Originally, I did not have any kind of message. I was just like, here's his character. Here's his situation. Let's explore it and see where it goes. In terms of where we end up in terms of message, I'm not really sure that there is necessarily a single one, Mm -hmm. except maybe that the relationships that we build in our lives are far more important than any kind of end goal or greater meaning. You've released this under the heading Strong Branch Productions. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about what Strong Branch Productions is? Strong Branch Productions is the production company that me and some of my friends founded a little over a year ago. It is a podcast and game company. So we also, a lot of the games that I design are also under the umbrella of Strong Branch. It started out with the stench of adventure at first it was just me and grace griego who is the voice of stella thomas we said hey there's a pandemic we want to still make art together we still want to do work together let's do it on our own terms we also had come out of the same theater department we had both been theater majors at swarthmore college and we had a lot of issues with the way that we saw theater and arts in general existing in the world the kind of competitive nature first of all also the the pretentious nature of it there was so much inaccessible art that we had to study for our major uh, things that felt very alienating and just in general, really bad and cruel practices for creators, for actors, for artists, for everyone. So we said, hey, what if we just start making things on our own terms where we put people's health first, we put inclusivity first, we put accessibility first, we make a company that is everything we have not seen theater to be in our lives. And that was kind of the impetus. Though so our, our slogan is betraying theater every day. Mm-hmm. And the idea of that is we're trying to take the way these kind of conventional theater practices and turn them on their head a little in a way, not just innovating art, finding new ways to tell stories, which is part of it, but also finding ways to tell stories that center the people involved and people's feelings. For instance, we just did a casting call for season two, and we made a commitment to write a personal email to every single person who auditioned for the show <laughs> instead right. of doing form, form rejections, all that, because our whole goal is making people feel seen and making people feel heard and, and making people feel included. That's also why we started a show called Strong Branching Out, where we invite other podcasts to come onto our show and play a tabletop game together. Hmm. And we also try to play indie games. So we also are trying to include, you know, game designers bringing in creatives from all different fields. So it started with me and Grace. We also brought in uh, Claire Yardy, who is our public relations manager. And then we have all of our actors and it has become this huge community of people. One of the things that brings me the most joy in my life right now. What does betraying theater mean to you? I think the best way to answer that would be to tell you where that first came from. Sure. It was a phone call that I had with 
my playwriting professor, actually the one who gave me the that assignment that that started the plot of the show, I really looked out to him. I thought his work was so cool. Uh, so I emailed him and I said, look, I'm having a bit of a crisis. I just graduated. Uh, I studied theater. I no longer know if I like theater. I'm feeling really cynical about the theater world. This was also around the time that I thought I was going to go into this sort of quote unquote conventional track where I was going to try to become an assistant in Hollywood and try to get into screenwriting that way. Mm -hmm. And I had just actually been fired from an internship with a Hollywood agent. So I was really not really down on all kinds of conventional tracks. So he called me and we talked a lot. And he he said a lot of things that were really helpful to me. Um, but one of the things I said was, hey, I'm thinking of getting into podcasting. I'm thinking about writing this script for an audio drama, but I worry going from the stage to audio, am I betraying theater? And he said, and he said it like it was the most obvious thing to him in the world. He said, I hope I'm betraying theater every day. That's the that's the point. Hmm. Like, I sure hope I am. And that and that was all the inspiration I needed. I was like, oh, okay, cool. What betraying theater means to me is not holding oneself to any specific pre-existing standards. Like I had this idea of what theater had to be based on what I was taught. And going into game design, going into podcasts, I felt like I was doing something wrong by not following my fancy training. <laughs> and and he reminded me that's what we should be doing. We should be pushing ourselves creatively. I am so thankful that I <laughs> betrayed everything I studied and just turned around and became a game designer and started doing podcasts and all that because I found so many new ways to tell stories and to tell stories with people and to build relationships with people while we are creating stories that I never would have found if I just stuck to a conventional theater. Let me ask you about working with an international cast because I was looking over your website and I was noting you're 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 based in Spain. You've got yes. you've got other people who were like in Pennsylvania. You've got people who were in L.A. I think. Tell me about your process. How do you collaborate with people that are spread out all over the world? With a lot of patience <laughs> is is the best answer I can give. It totally would be easier for us to record asynchronously, which many podcasts do, but we don't. Mm. And the reason is, well, it's two-pronged. One, I think you're going to get a better performance out of everyone every time if we are playing off each other in the same space, doing mm. the same thing, playing around, improvising. The second is it's so much more fun that way. It is so much more fun to be in this virtual space, playing with these people, especially since this is a comedy and a lot of the actors that I was lucky enough to get to do this are very talented comedians and improv actors. So there are some scenes in the show that were not only not scripted, I wrote in the script, Josie, you can play around here. Grace, make something up. Because I knew that they could, not only that they could do it, but that we would have so much fun just throwing things around. First season is finished, right? Yes. And you have your second season is on the way? Yeah, so it's completely written and we're casting a few roles. There are a few new roles, so we did a casting call. Once that is announced, uh, we're going to get started recording season two and it should be out sometime in 2022. 
As you look back on your first season and even the first episode specifically, how do you feel about what you've accomplished? Did you do what you wanted to do with the first season? So short answer, yes. Long answer, I think already in the past year, I have grown not only as a writer, but as a director and and as a sound designer and sound editor. So are there things I would change about the first season if I could go back? Absolutely. Am I considering completely redoing the first season one day? Possibly. But that being said, I'm still really proud of it and still really happy with it, even though I know if I were to do it again right now, a lot of technical things would be better. I'm still very happy with it and think we achieved what we set out to achieve, which at the end of the day was to make a show that we have fun making and people have fun listening to. Uh, One of the actors, E.K. Brickner, they have this thing that they say, which is the best pieces of media are those where you can see that the actors are having fun and Mm -hmm. you can tell that the actors are having fun. And I think that is what we achieved in the first season. And at the end of the day, that's what matters to me. What do you struggle with creatively? Rejection. Uh Rejection. Uh, That's that's tough if you're you're doing stand-up too. Ooh, yeah. It is. Uh, it sometimes that's thing is the more you put yourself out there, the more you open yourself up to rejection. Right. And it is so easy to get caught up in wanting the external validation. And as much as I tell myself, you know, I'm doing this for me. I feel good about this. I like this work. I am satisfied with it. It doesn't take away from how much it sucks when I send out my favorite short story and I get a form rejection immediately. Same thing is true with stand-up. I have had plenty of times where I go up, I have a bad set, and it takes a few days to recover from a bad set. I'm not going to lie. It can be pretty brutal. But then when you have a good set, you're like... You're, you're flying high. It feels it's the best. It's the best feeling in the world. And, you know, that's that's the reason to keep doing it. And that that feeling of having a good set in stand up, I think that is kind of equivalent to when you feel really good about something you produced, because that feeling is not about like the reaction of the audience. But that feeling is about feeling satisfied with what you've done. Mm. And I think and that's that's the thing that I just have to keep focusing myself on because it's so easy to get caught up, especially with a podcast. There's so many numbers. There's so many analytics. Like it's so easy to compare those numbers to somebody else's. The biggest struggle for me is to just say, I am doing my own thing. It is my own show. I can still do that and have a great time and fully support and be happy for and engage with all these other shows without comparing what I have done to something that is completely different. I think I struggle with the same thing sometimes. Uh, and oh, honestly, for sure, yeah. And I think everyone does, right? I mean, it's yeah. hard. It's hard when someone posts some major milestone and, you know, they're yeah. in the same kind of genre for you not to go. But what about me? Right. It's hard yeah. not to it's not hard not to have that feeling. One of the things that I've sort of had to learn as I've gone through this process of learning how to be a podcaster and putting myself out there is to sort of accept that part of me to say, yeah. some, sometimes I'm going to get irrationally jealous. And I know that I don't have any reason for it. And I know that I shouldn't. But that's just human nature. And yeah. I can still sort of live with that. But that's tough. Right. That yeah, is- I, I think that's what you said. I think that's like the, the best way to deal with it. I think I think something that I make very clear in the stunt of adventure is that one of my most difficult things to deal with is a sense of lack of control, mm. which is, you know, what the show is all about essentially. And I think one of the reasons that jealousy is such a difficult feeling for me is it makes me feel almost like 
impotent. Like there's nothing I can do about it. Being able to just kind of let that go and say, yeah, sometimes I'm going to feel that way. And at the end of the day, like still be friends with the people that maybe feel that way and still genuinely be happy for them and their accomplishment. So you've got a lot of irons in the fire. You've got several podcasts. You've got your game design. You've got your stand up. What keeps you motivated? Where, what keeps you going through all these projects? I just love it so much. I am very lucky in that when it comes to writing and when it comes to creative projects, I don't really need to look for motivation because it's the thing that I find myself doing. I, I have a, you know, a job that actually makes me the money because as much as I wish I could be making a living off this, I definitely can't be. And I think that's fine. When I'm supposed to be doing work for my money job, I end up just writing. Like it's just, it's just the thing that I fall into. I have this thing I talk about with my partner. I call them uh, high activation energy and low activation energy activities. Some things it takes a lot of energy to get myself to do and some things it doesn't. And the things it takes energy to get me to do are like washing the dishes, going out of the house, <laughs> stuff like that. And the things that are low activation energy is writing. Do you have any advice for people who want to get into producing audio drama? Oh, yeah. Oh, a lot. Um, <laughs> let's see. Let's see if I can condense it. Uh, I would say push yourself to do the best that you can while forgiving yourself for all of the things that you can't do. You're going to have limits, but if you have patience, you're also going to have a lot of ability to do things that you wouldn't do otherwise if you didn't put in the time. Like the first big ensemble scene of stench with, you know, Stu and Jerry and Stella and Dan and Mel and all of these people, that was one of the very first scenes we recorded. By the end of the process, I don't think a single person's original audio made it into that scene. Hmm. I think I ended up re-recording every single character separately, despite the fact that we did it synchronously, because I didn't know how to take the time to make sure we got it right in the moment. Hmm. I think patience, honestly, is one of the most useful skills you can have in creative work. But I also think the other thing about knowing your limits is remembering that you don't have to do anything alone. Josie Ross, who is the voice of Baz in the show, once said to me, I think that life in the arts and creating art is about finding your team and finding the people who you work well with so much so that you could continue to work with them for the rest of your life and keep calling upon them for the rest of your life. And that is what I recommend. That's probably my biggest piece of advice for anyone doing any kind of creative work, but especially in audio drama, where so much of it, so much of it is indie and so much of it is just about people supporting each other is find your team because they're out there and they want to support you and you're going to love them and want to support them. I think my whole life was fake. Okay. Everything I spent my whole existence worrying about None of it was real. Okay. And the only people who were real are dead. Okay. What do I have to live for anymore? Uh, you like pistachios. What? Well, I got a pack of pistachios here, if that would make you feel better. The shock of the first episode is just the beginning of Stella's absurd adventures across the galaxy. She is a fish out of water, 
with no water to return to. And fans of sci-fi satire like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Red Dwarf will feel at home. The Stench of Adventure is available on most major podcast platforms. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. The show's webpage is thefirstepisodeof.com. If you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, send an email to thefirstepisodeof at gmail.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I know you got questions about him. Where did he come from? How did he do all those things they say he did? Was he a terrorist? Was he crazy? Was his skin really blue? Well, I'll tell you what I know. I was there with him, driving through the back roads under the stars. I was witness to wonders and miracles, and to the darkness that's coursing through the veins of our country. He came to fight it in his own strange way, but no one leaves that fight unchanged. Not even Rael. People ought to know the truth. And I was there. The Book of Constellations is a down-to-earth sci-fi road trip. It's audio fiction, and you can find episodes at bookofconstellations.com or wherever you get your podcasts.